Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 26. After undergoing tests for brain tumors or lesions, to ascertain whether his seizures of violent amnesis might, in fact, have a physical cause, Junior was returned to his hospital room shortly before noon. No sooner was he abed once more than he cringed at the sight of Thomas Vanadium in the doorway. The detective entered, carrying a lunch tray. He put it on the adjustable bedstand, which he swung over Junior's lap. Apple juice, lime jello, and four soda crackers, said the detective. If you don't have enough of a conscience to make you confess, then this diet ought to break your will. I assure you, Enoch, the fare is far better in any Oregon prison. What's wrong with you? Junior demanded. As though he had not understood that the question required a reply and had not heard the implied rebuke, Vanadium went to the window and raised the Venetian blind, emitting such powerful sunlight that the glare seemed to crash into the room. It's a sunshine cake sort of day, Vanadium announced. Do you know that song, Sunshine Cake, Enoch? By James Van Heusen, a great songwriter. Not his most famous tune. He also wrote All the Way and Call Me Irresponsible. Come Fly With Me. That was one of his, too. Sunshine Cake is a minor tune, but a nice one. This patter poured out in the detective's patented drone. His flat face was as expressionless as his voice was uninflected. Please close that, Junior said. It's too bright. Turning from the window, approaching the bed, Vanadium said, I'm sure you prefer darkness, but I need to get some light under that rock of yours to see your expression when I give you the news. Although he knew it was dangerous to play along with Vanadium, Junior couldn't stop himself from asking, What news? Aren't you going to drink your apple juice? What news? The lab didn't find the Ipecac in your spew. Any what? Junior asked. Because he had pretended to be asleep when Vanadium and Dr. Parkhurst had discussed Ipecac the previous night. No Ipecac, no other emetic, and no poison of any kind. Naomi had been cleared of suspicion. Junior was pleased that their brief and beautiful time together would not be forever clouded by the possibility that she was a treacherous bitch who had tainted his food. I know you induced vomiting somehow, the detective said, but it looks like I'm not going to be able to prove it. Listen here, detective. These sick insinuations that somehow I had something to do with my wife's... Vanadium held up a hand as though to halt him and spoke over his complaint. Spare me the outrage. Besides, I'm not insinuating anything. I'm flat out accusing you of murder. Were you humping another woman, Enoch? Is that where your motivation lies? This is disgusting. To be honest, and I'm always honest with you, I can't find any hint of another woman. I've talked to a lot of people already, and everyone thinks you and Naomi were faithful to each other. I loved her. Yeah, you said, and I already conceded that might even be true. Your apple juice is getting warm. According to Caesar Zed, one cannot be strong until one first learns how to always be calm. Strength and power come from perfect self-control, and perfect self-control arises only from inner peace. Inner peace, Zed teaches, is largely a matter of deep, slow, and rhythmic breathing combined with a determined focus not on the past or even on the present, but on the future. In his bed, Junior closed his eyes and breathed slowly, deeply. He focused on thoughts of Victoria Bressler, the nurse who waited anxiously to please him in the days ahead. 
Actually, Vanadium said, mainly I came to get my quarter. Junior opened his eyes, but continued to breathe properly to ensure calm. He tried to imagine what Victoria's breasts would look like, freed from all restraint. Standing near the foot of the bed in a shapeless blue suit, Vanadium might have been the work of an eccentric artist who had carved a man out of spam and dressed a meaty sculpture in thrift shop threads. With the stocky detective looming, Junior wasn't able to stroke his imagination into an erotic mood. In his mind's eye, Victoria's ample bosom remained concealed behind a starched white uniform. Cops pay being what it is, Vanadium said. Every quarter counts. Magically, a quarter appeared in his right hand, between thumb and forefinger. This could not be the quarter that he had left with Junior in the night. Impossible. All day, for reasons he couldn't quite put into words, Junior had carried that quarter in a pocket of his bathrobe. From time to time, he had taken it out to examine it. Returning from his tests, he had gotten into bed without stripping off the thin hospital-issue robe. He was still wearing it over his pajamas. Vanadium couldn't know the whereabouts of the quarter. Besides, even when he had swung the lunch tray over Junior's lap, the detective hadn't been close enough to pick the pocket of the robe. This was a test of Junior's gullibility, and he would not give Vanadium the satisfaction of searching his robe for the coin. I'm going to file a complaint about you, Junior promised. I'll bring you to proper form next time I visit. Vanadium flipped the quarter straight in the air and at once spread his arms, palms turned up to show his hands were empty. Junior had seen the silvery coin snapping off the cop's thumb and spinning upward. Now, it was gone, as though it had vanished in midair. For an instant, his attention had been distracted by Vanadium's presentation of his empty hands. Nevertheless, there was no way the cop could have snatched the coin out of the air. Yet, uncaught, the quarter would have dropped to the floor. Junior would have heard it ring off the tiles, which he hadn't. As quick as the snake strikes, Vanadium was much closer to the bed than he had been when he tossed the coin, at Junior's side now, leaning over the railing. Naomi was six weeks pregnant. What? That's the news I mentioned. Most interesting thing in the autopsy report. Junior thought the news was a lab report, which had found no Ipecac in his spew. All that had been distraction. Those spike-sharp eyes, Tim Penny Gray, nailed Junior to the bed, pinning him for scrutiny. Here now came the anaconda smile. Did you argue about the baby, Enoch? Maybe she wanted it and you didn't. Guy like you, a baby will cramp your style. Too much responsibility. I, I didn't know. Blood tests should reveal whether the child's yours or not. That also might explain all this. I was going to be a father, Junior said with genuine awe. Have I found the motive, Enoch? Astonished and appalled by the cops' insensitivity, Junior said, You just dropped this on me? I lost my wife and my baby. My wife and my baby. You're as good with the illusion of torments as I am with the quarter. Tears burst from Junior, stinging torrents, a salt sea of grief that blurred his vision and bathed his face in brine. Get out of here, you disgusting, sick son of a bitch, he demanded, his voice simultaneously shaking with sorrow and twisted by righteous anger. Get out of here now. Get out. As he headed towards the door, the detective said, Don't forget your apple juice. Gotta build some strength for the trial. Junior discovered more tears than could have been found in 10,000 onions. His wife and his unborn baby. He had been willing to sacrifice his beloved Naomi. 
but maybe he would have found the cost too high if he had known that he was also sacrificing his first conceived child. This was too much. He was bereft. No more than a minute after Vanadium departed, a nurse arrived in a rush, no doubt sent by the hateful cop. Hard to tell, through all the tears, if she was a looker. Nice face, perhaps, but such a stick thin body. Concerned that Junior's crying jag would trigger spasms of the abdominal muscles, and ultimately another attack of hemorrhagic vomiting, the nurse had with her a tranquilizer. She wanted him to use the apple juice to wash down the pill. Junior would have rather chugged a beaker of carbolic acid than touch the juice because a lunch tray had been brought to him by Thomas Vanadium. The maniac cop, determined to get his man one way or another, was capable of resorting to poison if he felt that the usual instruments of the law were unequal to the task. At Junior's insistence, the nurse poured a glass of water from the bedside carafe. Vanadium had been nowhere near the carafe. After a while, the tranquilizer and the relaxation techniques taught by Caesar Zed restored Junior's self-control. The nurse stayed with him until his storm of tears had passed. Clearly, he wasn't going to succumb to violent, nervous emesis. She promised to bring fresh apple juice after he complained that the servant before him had an odd taste. Alone, calm again, Junior was able to apply what was arguably the central tenet of the philosophy of Zed, always look for the bright side. Regardless of the severity of a setback, no matter how dreadful a blow you sustain, you could always discover a bright side if you search hard enough. The key to happiness, success, and mental health was utterly to ignore the negative, deny its power over you, and find reason to celebrate every development in life, including the cruelest catastrophe by discovering the bright side to even the darkest hour. In this case, the bright side was blindingly bright. Having lost both a singularly beautiful wife and an unborn child, Junior would earn the sympathy, the pity, the love of any jury in front of whom the state might hope to defend against a wrongful death suit. Earlier, he had been surprised by the visit from Knacker, Hiskus, and Nork. He hadn't thought he'd see their kind for days, and then he would have expected no more than a single attorney taking a low-key approach and making a modest proposal. Now he understood why they had descended in strength eager to discuss redress, requital, restitutional apology. The coroner had informed them, before the police, that Naomi had been pregnant, and they had recognized the state's extreme vulnerability. The nurse returned with fresh apple juice, chilled and sweet. Junior sipped the beverage slowly. By the time he reached the bottom of the glass, he had come to the inescapable conclusion that Naomi had been hiding her pregnancy from him. In the six weeks since conception, she must have missed at least one menstrual period. She hadn't complained of morning sickness, but surely she had experienced it. It was highly unlikely that she had been unaware of her condition. He had never expressed opposition to starting a family. She had no reason to fear telling him that she was carrying their child. Regrettably, he had no choice but to conclude that she hadn't made up her mind whether to keep the baby or to seek out an illegal abortion without Junior's approval. She had been thinking about scraping his child out of her womb without even telling him. This insult, this outrage, this treachery stunned Junior. Inevitably, he had to wonder if Naomi had kept her pregnancy secret because, indeed, she suspected that the child wasn't her husband's. If blood tests revealed that Junior wasn't the father, Vanadian would have a motive. 
It wouldn't be the right motive because Junior truly hadn't known either that his wife was pregnant or that she was possibly screwing around with another man. But the detective would be able to sell it to a prosecutor and the prosecutor would convince at least a few jurors. Naomi, you dumb, unfaithful bitch. He ardently wished that he hadn't killed her with such merciful swiftness. If he tortured her first, he would now have the memory of her suffering from which to take consolation. For a while, he looked for the bright side. It eluded him. He ate the lime jello, the soda crackers. Eventually, Junior remembered the quarter. He reached into the right pocket of the thin cotton bathrobe, but the coin wasn't there as it should have been. The left pocket was also empty. Chapter 27 Walter Panglo the only mortician in Bright Beach was a sweet-tempered wisp of a man who enjoyed puttering in his garden when he wasn't planting dead people. He grew prized roses and gave them away in great bouquets to the sick, to young people in love, to the school librarian on her birthday, to clerks who had been polite to him. His wife, Dorothea, adored him, not least of all because he had taken in her 80-year-old mother and treated that elderly lady as though she were both the Duchess and a saint. He was equally generous to the poor, burying their dead at cost, but with utmost dignity. Jacob Isaacson, twin brother of Edom, knew nothing negative about Panglo, but he didn't trust him. If the mortician had been caught prying gold teeth from the dead and carving satanic symbols into their buttocks, Jacob would have said, it figures. If Panglo had saved bottles of infected blood from diseased cadavers, and if one day he ran through town splashing it into the face of unsuspecting citizens, Jacob would not have raised one eyebrow in surprise. Jacob trusted no one but Agnes and Edom. He had trusted Joey Lampion, too, after years of wary observance. Now Joey was dead, and his corpse was in the embalming chamber of the Panglo funeral home. Currently, Jacob was far removed from the embalming chamber and intended never to set foot there alive. With Walter Panglo as his guide, he toured the casket selection in the funeral planning room. He wanted the most expensive box for Joey, but Joey, a modest and prudent man, would have disapproved. Instead, he selected a handsome but not ornate casket just above the median price. Deeply distressed that he was planning the funeral of a man as young as Joe Lampion, whom he had liked and admired, Panglo paused to express his disbelief and to murmur comforting words, more to himself than to Jacob, as each decision was made. With one hand on the chosen casket, he said, Unbelievable. A traffic accident, and on the very day his son is born. So sad. So terribly sad. Not so unbelievable, said Jacob. 45,000 people every year die in automobiles. Cars aren't transportation. They're death machines. Tens of thousands are disfigured, maimed for life. Whereas Edom feared the wrath of nature, Jacob knew that the true hand of doom was a hand of humankind. Not the trains are any better. Look at the Bakersfield crash back in 1960. Santa Fe chief out of San Francisco smashed to an oil tank truck. 17 people crushed, burning a river of fire. Jacob feared what men could do with clubs, knives, guns, bombs with their bare hands, but he was most preoccupied by the unintended death that humanity brought upon itself with its devices, machines, and structures meant to improve the quality of life. 50 people died in London in 57 when two trains crashed, and 112 were crushed, torn, and mangled in 52, also in England. 
Frowning, Pangolo said, Terrible, you're right. So many terrible things happen, but I don't see why trains... It's all the same. Cars, trains, ships, all the same, Jacob insisted. You remember the Toya Maru? Japanese ferry capsized back in September of 54. 1,168 people dead or worse. In 48, off Manchuria, God Almighty, the boiler exploded on a Chinese merchant ship. 6,000 died. 6,000 on a single ship. Over the following hour, as Walter Pangolo guided Jacob through the planning of a funeral, Jacob recounted the gruesome details of numerous airline crashes, shipwrecks, train collisions, coal mine disasters, dam collapses, hotel fires, nightclub fires, pipeline of oil well explosions, munitions plant explosions. By the time all the details of mortuary and cemetery services were settled, Walter Panglo had a nervous tick in his left cheek. His eyes were open wide, as if he had been so startled that his lids froze in a position of ascension, locked by a spasm of surprise. His hands must have grown clammy. He blotted them repeatedly on his suit. Aware of the mortician's new edginess, Jacob was convinced that his initial distrust of Pangolo was justified. This twitchy little guy seemed to have something to hide. Jacob didn't have to be a cop to recognize nervousness born of guilt. At the front door of the funeral home, as Pangla was showing him out, Jacob leaned close. Joe Lampion didn't have any gold teeth. Pangla seemed baffled. He was probably faking it. The diminutive mortician spoke a few comforting words instead of commenting on the dental history of the deceased. And when he put a consoling hand on Jacob's shoulder, Jacob cringed from his touch. Confused, Pangla held out his right hand, but Jacob said, Sorry, no offense, but I don't shake hands with anyone. Well, certainly, I understand, said Panglo, slowly lowering his offered hand, although he clearly didn't understand it all. It's just that you never know what anyone's hand has been up to recently, Jacob explained. That respectable banker down the street might have 30 dismembered women buried in his backyard. The nice church-going lady next door might be sleeping in the same bed with the rotted corpse of a lover who tried to jilt her, and for a hobby, she always makes jewelry from the finger bones of preschool children she's tortured and murdered. Panglo safely tucked both hands into his pants pockets. I've got hundreds of files on cases like that, said Jacob, and much worse. If you're interested, I'll get you copies of some. That's kind of you, Panglo stammered, but I have little time for reading. Very, very little time. Reluctant to leave Joey's body with the oddly jumpy mortician, Jacob nevertheless crossed the porch of the Victorian-style funeral home and left without glancing back. He walked one mile home alert to passing traffic, especially cautious at intersections. His apartment, over the large garage, was reached by a set of exterior stairs. The space was divided into two rooms. The first was a combination living room and kitchenette, with a corner dining table seating two. Beyond was a small bedroom with an adjoining bath. More walls than not in both rooms were lined with bookshelves and file cabinets. Here, he kept numerous case studies of accidents, man-made disasters, serial killers, spree killers, proof undeniable that humanity was a fallen species engaged in both the unintentional and calculated destruction of itself. In the neatly ordered bedroom, he removed his shoes. Stretching out on the bed, he stared at the ceiling, feeling useless. Agnes widowed. Bartholomew born fatherless. Too much. Too much. Jacob didn't know how he could ever bear to look at Agnes when she came home from the hospital. The sorrow in her eyes would kill him as surely as a knife to the heart. 
her lifelong optimism, her buoyancy, which she had miraculously sustained through so many difficult years, would never survive this. She would no longer be a rock of hope for him and Edom. Their future was despair, undiluted and unrelenting. Maybe he would get lucky and the airliner would fall out of the sky right here, right now, obliterating him in an instant. They lived too far from the nearest railroad tracks. He could not rationally expect a derailed train to crash through the garage. On a positive note, the apartment was heated by a gas furnace, a leak, a spark, an explosion, and he would never have to see poor Agnes in her misery. After a while, when no plane crashed on top of him, Jacob got up, went into the kitchen, and mixed a batch of dough for Agnes's favorite treats, chocolate chip cookies with coconut and pecans. He considered himself to be a thoroughly useless man, taking up space in a world to which he contributed nothing. But he did have a talent for baking. He could take any recipe, even one from a world-class pastry chef, and improve upon it. When he was baking, the world seemed to be a less dangerous place. Sometimes, when making a cake, he forgot to be afraid. The gas oven might blow up in his face, at last bringing him peace, but if it didn't, he would at least have cookies for Agnes. Chapter 28 Shortly before 1 o'clock, the Hackachacks descended in a fury, eyes full of bloody intent, teeth bared, voices shrill. Junior had expected these singular creatures, and he needed them to be as monstrous as they had always been in the past. Nonetheless, he shrank back against his pillows in dismay when they exploded into the hospital room. Their faces were as fierce as those of a painted cannibals coming off a fast. They gestured emphatically, spitting expletives along with tiny bits of lunch dislodged from their teeth by the force of their condemnations. Rudy Hackachack, big rude to his friends, was six feet four, as rough-hewn as a log sculpture carved with a woodman's axe, in a green polyester suit with sleeves an inch too short, an unfortunate urine yellow shirt, and a tie that might have been the national flag of a third world country famous for nothing but a lack of design sense. He looked like Dr. Frankenstein's beast gussied up for an evening of bar hopping in Transylvania. You better wise up, you tree-humping nitwit, Rudy advised Junior, grabbing the bed railing as if he might tear it off and use it to club his son-in-law senseless. If Big Rue was Naomi's father, he must not have contributed a single gene to her, must have somehow shock-fertilized his wife's egg with just his booming voice, with an orgasmic bellow, because nothing about Naomi, neither in appearance nor personality, had resembled him in the least. Sheena Hackashack, at 44, was more beautiful than any current movie star. She looked 20 years younger than her true age, and she so resembled her late daughter that Junior felt a rush of erotic nostalgia at the sight of her. Similarities between Naomi and her mom ended with appearances. Sheena was loud, crass, self-absorbed, and had the vocabulary of a brothel owner specializing in services to sailors with Tourette's syndrome. She stepped to the bed, bracketing Junior between her and Big Rude. The stream of obscene invective issuing from Sheena made Junior feel as if he had gotten in the way of a septic tank clean-out hose. To the foot of the bed slouched the third and final hackachack, 24-year-old Caitlin, Naomi's big sister. Caitlin was the unfortunate sister, having inherited her looks from her father and her personality equally from both parents. A peculiar coppery cast enlivened her brown eyes, and in a certain slant of light, her angry glare could flash as red as blood. 
Caitlin had the piercing voice and talent for vituperation that marked her as a member of the Hackachack tribe, but for now she was content to leave the vocal assault to her parents. The stare with which she had drilled Junior, however, it brought to bear on a promising geological formation, would core the earth and strike oil in minutes. They had not come to Junior yesterday in their grief, if, in fact, they had thought to grieve. They hadn't been close to Naomi, who had once said she felt like Romulus and Remus, raised by wolves, or like Tarzan if he had fallen into the hands of nasty gorillas. To Junior, Naomi was Cinderella, sweet and good, and he was a love-struck prince who had rescued her. The Hackachacks had arrived post-grief, brought to the hospital by the news that Junior had expressed distaste at the prospect of profiting from his wife's tragic fall. They knew he had turned away Knacker, Hiskis, and Nork. His in-laws' chances of receiving compensation for their pain and suffering over Naomi's death was seriously compromised if her husband did not hold the state or county responsible. In this, as in nothing previously, they felt the need to stand united as a family. In the instant the junior had shoved Naomi into the rotted railing, he had foreseen this visit from Rudy, Sheena, and Caitlin. He had known he could pretend to be offended at the state's offer to put a price on his loss, could feign revulsion, could resist convincingly, until gradually, after grueling days or weeks, he reluctantly allowed the indefatigable hackachacks to browbeat him into a despairing, exhausted, disgusted compliance with their greed. By the time his ferocious in-laws had finished with him, Junior would have won the sympathy of Knacker, Hiskis, Nork, and everyone else who might have harbored doubts about his role in Naomi's demise. Perhaps even Thomas Benadian would find his suspicion worn away. Shrieking like carrion-eating birds waiting for their wounded dinner to die, the Hackachacks twice grew stern warnings from nurses. They were told to quiet down and respect the patients in neighboring rooms. More than twice, worried nurses, and even the resident internists, braved the tumult to check on Junior's condition. They asked if he really felt up to entertaining visitors. These visitors. They're all the family I have, Junior said, with what he hoped sounded like sorrow and long-suffering love. This claim wasn't true. His father, an unsuccessful artist and highly successful alcoholic, lived in Santa Monica, California. His mother, divorced when Junior was four, had been committed to an insane asylum 12 years ago. He rarely saw them. He hadn't told Naomi about them. Neither of his parents were a resume enhancer. After the latest concerned nurse departed, Sheena leaned close. She cruelly pinched Junior's cheek between thumb and forefinger, as if she might tear off a gobbet of flesh and pop it into her mouth. Get this through your head, you shit for brains. I lost a daughter. A precious daughter. My Naomi, the light of my life. Caitlin glared at her mother as though betrayed. Naomi, she popped out of my oven 20 years ago, not out of yours, Sheena continued in a fierce whisper. If anyone's suffering here, it's me, not you. Who are you anyway? Some guy who's been boinking her for a couple years, that's all you are. I'm her mother. You can never know my pain. And if you don't stand with this family to make these wankers pay a big time... I'll personally cut your balls off while you're sleeping and feed them to my cat. You don't have a cat. I'll buy one, Sheena promised. Junior knew she'd fulfill her threat. Even if he hadn't wanted money himself, and he wanted it, he would never dare thwart Sheena. Even Rudy, as huge as Bigfoot and as immoral as a skink, was afraid of this woman. 
All three of these sorry excuses for human beings were money mad. Rudy owned six successful used car dealerships and, his pride, a Ford franchise selling new and used vehicles in five Oregon communities. But he liked to live large. He also visited Vegas four times a year, pouring money away as casually as he might empty his bladder. Sheena enjoyed Vegas too, and was a fiend for shopping. Caitlin liked men, pretty ones, but since she might be mistaken for her father in a dimly lighted room, her hunks came at a price. At one point late in the afternoon, as all three hackachacks were hurling scorn and invective at Junior, he noticed Vanadium standing in the doorway, observing. Perfect. He pretended not to see the cop. When next he sneaked a look, he discovered the Vanadium had vanished like a wraith. A thick slab of a wraith. During the day, and then following a dinner break, the hackachacks persisted. The hospital had never witnessed such a spectacle. Shifts changed and new nurses came to attend the junior in greater numbers than necessary, using any excuse to get a glimpse of the freak show. By the time the family was ushered out protesting at the end of evening visiting hours, Junior hadn't succumbed to their pressure. If his conversion was to appear convincingly reluctant, he would have to resist him for at least another few days. Alone at last, he was exhausted, physically, emotionally, and intellectually. Murder itself was easy, but the aftermath was more draining than he had anticipated. Although the ultimate liability settlement with the state was certain to leave him financially secure for life, the stress was so great that he wondered, in his darker moments, if the reward would prove to be worth the risk. He decided that he must never again kill so impetuously. Never. In fact, he vowed never again to kill at all, except in self-defense. Soon, he will be rich, with much to lose if he were caught. Homicide was a marvelous adventure. Sadly, it was an entertainment that he could no longer afford. If he had known that he would break his solemn vow twice before the month was ended, and that neither victim, unfortunately, would be a hackachack, he might not have fallen asleep so easily. And he might not have dreamed of cleverly stealing hundreds of quarters out of Thomas Benadium's pockets while the baffled detective searched for them in vain. Chapter 29 Monday Morning Far above Joe Lampion's grave, the translucent blue sky shed a rain of light so pure and clear that the world seemed to have been washed clean of all of its stains. An overflow crowd of mourners had attended the services at St. Thomas's Church, standing shoulder to shoulder at the back of the nave, through the narthex, and across the sidewalk outside. And now everyone had appeared to come to the cemetery as well. Assisted by Edom and Jacob, Agnes, in a wheelchair, was rolled across the grass between the headstones to her husband's final resting place. Although no longer in danger of renewed hemorrhaging, she was under doctor's orders to avoid strain. In her arms, she held Bartholomew. The infant was not heavily bundled, for the weather was unseasonably mild. Agnes would not be able to bear her ordeal without the baby. This small weight in her arms was the anchor dropped in the sea of the future, preventing her from drifting back into memories of days gone by. So many good days with Joey. Memories which, at this critical moment, would strike like hammer blows upon her heart. Later, they would comfort her. Not yet. The mound of earth beside the grave had been disguised by piles of flowers and cut ferns. The suspended casket was skirted with black material to conceal the yawning grave beneath it. Although a believer, Agnes was not at the moment able to spread the flowers and ferns of faith over the hard, ugly reality of death. Cowed and skeletal, death was here, all right. 
scattering his seeds amongst all her gathered friends, one day to reap them. Flanking the wheelchair, Edom and Jacob spent less time watching the grayside service than studying the sky. Both brothers frowned at the cloudless blue, as though seeing thunderheads. Agnes supposed Jacob trembled in anticipation of the crash of an airliner or at least a light aircraft. Edom might be calculating the odds that this serene place, at this specific hour, would be the impact point for one of those planet-killing asteroids that repeatedly wipe most life off the Earth every few hundred thousand years or so. A spirit-shredding bleakness clawed at her, but she couldn't permit it to leave her in tatters. If she traded hope for despair, as her brothers had done, Bartholomew would be finished before he had begun. She owed him optimism, lessons in the joy of life. After the service, among those who came to Agnes at Grayside, trying to express the inexpressible, was Paul Damascus, the owner of Damascus Pharmacy on Ocean Avenue. Of Mid-Eastern extraction, he had dark olive skin and, incredibly, rust-red hair. With his rust-red eyebrows, lashes, and mustache, his handsome face looked like that of a bronze statue with a curious patina. Paul knelt on one knee beside her wheelchair. This momentous day, Agnes. This momentous day with all of its beginnings, hmm? He said this as though confident Agnes would understand what he meant, with a smile and a glint in his eyes that almost became a wink, as if they were members of a secret society in which these three repeated words were code, embodying a complex meaning other than what was apparent to the uninitiated. Before Agnes was able to respond, Paul sprang up and moved away. Other friends knelt and crouched and bent to her, and she lost sight of the pharmacist as he moved off through the dispersing crowd. This momentous day, Agnes. This momentous day with all of its beginnings. What an odd thing to say. A sense of mystery overcame Agnes, unnerving, but not entirely or primarily unpleasant. She shivered, and Edom, thinking that she had caught a chill, slipped off his suit jacket and draped it over her shoulders. This Monday morning in Oregon was bleak, with the swollen, dark bellies of rain clouds swagging lower to cemetery, a dreary send-off for Naomi, even though rain was not yet falling. Standing at Grayside, Junior was in a foul mood. He was weary of pretending to be deep in grief. Three and a half days had passed since he had pushed his wife off the tower, and in that time he had had no real fun. He was gregarious by nature, never wanted to turn down a party invite. He liked to laugh, to love, to live, but he couldn't enjoy life when he must remember at all times to appear bereft and to keep sorrow in his voice. Worse, to make credible his anguish and to avoid suspicion, he would have to play the devastated widower for at least another couple weeks, perhaps for as long as a month. As a dedicated follower of the self-improvement advice of Dr. Caesar Zed, Junior was impatient with those who were ruled by sentimentality and by the expectations of society. And now he was required to pretend to be one of them, and for an interminable period of time. Being uniquely sensitive, he had mourned Naomi with his entire body, with violent emesis and pharyngeal bleeding and incontinence. His grief had been so racking that it might have killed him. Enough was enough. Only a small group of mourners gathered for this service. Junior and Naomi had been so intensely involved with each other that, Unlike many married couples, they had made few friends. The Hackachacks were present, of course. Junior had not yet agreed to join them in their pursuit of blood money. They would give him little privacy or rest until they had what they wanted. 
Rudy's blue suit, as usual, pinched and shorted his shambling frame. Here in a boneyard, he appeared to be not just a man with a bad tailor, but a grave robber who looted the dead for his wardrobe. Against the backdrop of granite monuments, Caitlin hulked like a moldering presence from beyond, risen out of a rotting box to take vengeance on the living. Rudy and Caitlin frequently glared at Junior, and Sheena most likely gouged him with her gaze too, but he couldn't quite see her eyes through her black veil. A stunning figure in her tight black dress, the bereaved mother was likewise hampered by this accessory of grief, because she had to hold her wristwatch close to her face to see the time, when more than once the service seemed interminable. Junior intended to capitulate later today, at a gathering of family and friends. Rudy had organized a buffet in the showroom of his new Ford dealership, which he had closed her business until 3 o'clock. Lamentations, lunch, and moving reminiscence of the deceased shared amongst the shiny new Thunderbirds, Galaxies, and Mustangs. That venue would provide Junior with the witnesses he required for his reluctant, tearful, and perhaps even angry concession to the Hackachack's insistent materialism. Elsewhere in the cemetery, about 150 yards away, Another interment service, with a much larger group of mourners, had begun prior to this one from Naomi. Now it was over, and the people were dispersing to their cars. From a distance and through a scattering of trees, Junior wasn't able to discern much about the other funeral, but he was pretty sure many, if not most of that crowd, were Negroes. He surmised, therefore, that the person being buried was a Negro, too. This surprised him. Of course, Oregon was not the Deep South. It was a progressive state. Nonetheless, he was surprised. Oregon wasn't home to many Negroes either, a handful compared to those in other states. And yet, until now, Junior supposed they had their own cemeteries. He had nothing against Negroes. He didn't wish them ill. He wasn't prejudiced. Live and let live. He believed that as long as they stayed with their own kind and abided by the rules of polite society, like everyone else, they had a right to live in peace. This colored person's grave, however, was uphill in Naomi's. Over time, as the body decomposed up there, its juices would mix with the soil. When rain saturated the ground, subsurface drainage would carry those juices steadily down slope until they seeped into Naomi's grave and mingled with her remains. This seemed highly inappropriate to Junior. Nothing you could do about it now. Having Naomi's body moved to another grave in a cemetery without Negroes would cause a lot of talk. He didn't want to draw more attention to himself. He decided, however, to see an attorney about a will, and soon. He wanted to specify that he was to be cremated and that his ashes were to be entombed in one of those memorial walls, well above ground level, where nothing was likely to seep into them. Only one member of the distant funeral party did not disperse toward the line of cars on the service road. A man in the dark suit headed downhill, between the headstones and the monuments, directly towards Naomi's grave. Junior couldn't imagine why some Negro stranger would want to intrude. He hoped there wouldn't be trouble. The minister had finished. The service was over. No one came to Junior with condolences, because they would see him again shortly at the Ford dealership buffet. By now, he recognized that the man approaching from the other graveside service was neither a Negro nor a stranger. Detective Thomas Vanadium was annoying enough to be an honorary hackachack. Junior considered leaving before Vanadium, still 75 yards away, arrived. He was afraid he would appear to be fleeing. 
The funeral director and his assistant were the only people, other than Junior, remaining at the grave. They asked if they might lower the casket, or if he'd rather they wait until he was gone. Junior gave them permission to proceed. The two men detached and rolled up the pleated green skirt that hung from the rectangular frame of the graveyard winch, on which the casket was suspended. Green, rather than black, because Naomi loved nature. Junior had been thoughtful about the details of the service. Now, the hull was revealed. Damp earthen walls. In the shadow of the casket, the bottom of the grave was dark and hidden from view. Vanadium arrived and stood beside Junior. His black suit was cheap, but it fit better than Rudy's. The detective carried a single long stem white rose. Two cranks operated the winch. The mortician and his assistant turned the handles in unison, and as the mechanism creaked softly, the casket slowly descended into the hole. Finally, Vanadium said, According to the lab report, the baby she was carrying was almost certainly yours. Junior said nothing. He was still upset with Naomi for hiding the pregnancy from him, but he was delighted that the baby would have been his. Now Vanadium couldn't claim that Naomi's infidelity and the resultant bastard had been the motive for murder. Even as this news pleased Junior, it also saddened him. He was not merely interring a lovely wife, but also his first child. He was burying his family. Refusing to give the cop the satisfaction of a reply to the news of the unborn baby's paternity, Junior stared unwaveringly into the grave and said, Whose funeral were you attending? A friend's daughter. They say she died in a traffic accident down in San Francisco. She's even younger than Naomi. Tragic. Her string's been cut too soon. Her music's ended prematurely, Junior said, feeling confident enough to dish the serving of the maniac cop's half-baked theory of life back to him. There's a discord in the universe now, Detective. No one can know how the vibration of that discord will come to affect me, you, all of us. Repressing a smirk, fanning a respectful solemnity, he dared to glance at Vanadium, but the detective stared in Naomi's grave as though he hadn't heard the mockery, or, having heard it, didn't recognize it for what it was. Then Junior saw the blood on the right cuff of Vanadium's shirt, blood dripping from his hand too. The thorns had not been stripped from the long stem of the white rose. Vanadium clutched it so tightly that the sharp points punctured his meaty palm. He seemed to be unaware of his wounds. Suddenly and seriously creeped out, Junior wanted to get away from this nutcase. Yet he was frozen by morbid fascination. This momentous day, Thomas Vanadium said quietly, still gazing into the grave, seems full of terrible endings. But like every day, it's actually full of nothing but beginnings. With a solid thump, Naomi's firing casket reached the bottom of the hole. This sure looked like an ending to Junior. This momentous day, the detective murmured. Deciding that he didn't need an exit line, Junior headed towards the service road and his Suburban. The pendulous bellies of the rain-swollen clouds were no darker than when he had first come to the cemetery, yet they appear more ominous now than earlier. When he reached the Suburban, he looked back towards the grave. The mortician and his assistant were nearly finished dismantling the frame of the winch. Soon, a worker would close the hole. While Junior watched, Vanadium extended his right arm over the open grave. In his hand, the white rose, its thorns slick with his blood. He dropped the bloom, and it fell out of sight, into the gaping earth, atop Naomi's casket.
on this Monday evening, with both Femi and the son having traveled in the darkness, Celestina sat down to dinner with her mother and her father in the dining room of the parsonage. Other members of the family, friends, and parishioners were all gone. Uncanny quiet filled the house. Always before, this home had been full of love and warmth, and still it was, although from time to time, Celestina felt a fleeting chill that couldn't be attributed to a draft. Never previously had this house seemed the least bit empty, but an emptiness invaded it now, the void left by her lost sister. In the morning, she would return to San Francisco with her mom. She was reluctant to leave Daddy to adapt to this emptiness alone. Nevertheless, they must leave without delay. The baby would be released from the hospital as soon as a minor infection cleared up. Now that Grace and the Reverend had been granted temporary custody pending adoption, preparations had to be made for Celestina to be able to fulfill her commitment to raise a child. As usual, dinner was by candlelight. Celestina's parents were romantics. Also, they believed that gracious dining had a civilizing effect on children, even at the fairest frequently simple meatloaf. They were not amongst those Baptists who forsook drink, but they served wine only on special occasions. At the first dinner following a funeral, after the prayers and the tears, a family tradition required a toast to the dearly departed. A single glass, Merlot. On this occasion, the flickering candlelight contributed not to a romantic mood, not to merely a civilizing ambiance, but to a reverential hush. With slow ceremonial grace, her father opened the bottle and served three portions. His hands trembled. Reflection the lambent candle flames that gilded the curved bowls of the long stem glasses. They gathered at one end of the dining table. The dark purple wine shimmered with ruby highlights when Celestina raised her glass. The Reverend made the first toast, speaking so softly that his tremulous words seemed to bloom in Celestina's mind and heart rather than fall upon her ears. To gentle Femi, who is with God. Grace said, To my sweet Femi, who will never die. The toast now came to Celestina. To Femi, who will be with me in memory every hour of every day for the rest of my life, until she is with me again for real, and to, to this most momentous day, to this momentous day, her father and mother repeated. The wine tasted bitter, but Celestina knew that it was sweet. The bitterness was in her, not in the legacy of the grape. She felt that she had failed her sister. She didn't know what more she could have done, but if she had been wiser and more insightful and more attentive, surely this terrible loss would not have come to pass. What good was she to anybody? What good could she ever hope to be if she couldn't even save her little sister? Candle flames blurred in the bright smears, and the face of her good parents shimmered like the half-seen countenances of angels in dreams. I know what you're thinking, her mother said, reaching across the table and placing one hand over Celestina's. I know how useless you feel, how helpless, how small, but you must remember this. Her father gently closed one of his big hands over theirs. Grace, proving again the aptness of her name, said the one thing most likely in time to bring true peace to Celestina. Remember Bartholomew. 916, 
633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Uh, you can leave a review on Spotify. You can also leave a review on Podchaser. Uh, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And you can leave a review in the uh, Good Pods app. Uh, you can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the uh, Good Pods app. You can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank you again for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to you later. Peace. outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.